said. Revelation 19, starting at verses 1, verse 1, and we'll read through verse 10. And after these things, I heard a great voice of much people in heaven saying, Alleluia, salvation and glory and honor and power unto the Lord our God. For true and righteous are his judgments, for he has judged the great whore, which did corrupt the earth with her fornication, and has avenged the blood of his servants at her hand. And again they said, Hallelujah. And her smoke rose up forever and ever. And the four and twenty elders and the four beasts fell down and worshipped God and, that, and worshipped God that sat on the throne, saying, Amen. Hallelujah. And a voice came out of the throne saying, Praise our God, all you his servants, and you that fear him, both small and great. And I heard, as it were, the voice of a great multitude, and as the voice of many waters, and as the voice of mighty thunderings, saying, Hallelujah, for the Lord God omnipotent reigns. Let us be glad and rejoice and give honor to him for the marriage of the lamb is come and his wife has made herself ready. And to her was granted that she should be arrayed in fine linen, clean and white for the fine linen is the righteousness of saints. And he said unto me, write, blessed are they which are called to the marriage supper of the lamb and He saith unto me, these are true sayings of God. And I fell at his feet to worship him. And he said unto me, see that thou do it not. I am thy fellow servant and of thy brethren that have the testimony of Jesus. Worship God for the testimony of Jesus is the spirit of prophecy. In the past two chapters, we've seen the destruction of this wicked world system. Whether we accept that easily or not, the Lord Jesus Christ is to be praised for the destruction of wickedness. In Revelation 19, we sort of turn this corner and we find the Lord Jesus Christ being praised for reasons that, well, they just feel more positive to us. He possesses salvation and glory and honor and power. He reigns both now and forever. He's to be glorified as a groom coming to collect his bride. The entire purpose of all revelation is to declare the glory of Jesus. It's in this passage that proved to be the inspiration for one of the most well-known choruses in history, George Frederick Handel composed a work called Messiah, which includes the Hallelujah Chorus, a portion of which is taken directly from the end of verse 6, right? The Lord God omnipotent reigneth forever and ever, right? In addition to Handel, there's been no shortage of preachers who have declared that they've got a handle on this by focusing on the identity of this wife or the bride for Christ down in verse 7 and exactly who it is who is united with him at the marriage supper of the lamb mentioned in verse 9 and to be sure that is an important part of the text just 
Just think of how this turning point in Revelation is coming to us, right? In verses seven, uh, chapter 17 and 18, there's this great prostitute described and she is identified with the wicked city of Babylon. Starting in chapter 19 now, there is another woman described in contrast to that great harlot. She is a faithful bride and she's also associated with a city. When we get to chapter 21, we'll see she's associated with the New Jerusalem. And So while I think it's obviously an important part of the storyline here, Let me once again start off by telling you what I don't know. There have been times where I have to tell you I don't know. And while I am not afraid to say that to you, I don't enjoy saying that to you. I spent the better part of this week trying to unravel my thoughts on this question. And what I've done is come away with more questions. So let's get that part of the message out of the way early. Here's what I am not sure about and why I'm not sure about it. The Sovereign Grace Landmark Baptist Party line is that the bride is the faithful members of the Lord's true churches. That is, it is the Baptist bride, and you have to be in the right church in order to be faithful and part of it. There is sort of a revised view of that, that instead of saying it's the faithful members of the Lord's true churches, it's the true members of the Lord's faithful churches, which is just a little bit different. It focuses mostly on the faithfulness of individual assemblies rather than people. There is the common evangelical view that the bride is the church, and by the church they mean a universal, invisible church made up of all the saved throughout history. And some would limit it to the church, all those saved since Jesus' coming, so that Old Testament saints would not be part of the bride. And then even yet others would say that only Old Testament saints make up the bride, that the bride is, is Israel. And surprisingly, there's some Old Testament passages which can be used to make that argument. If you back up about 10 years... I would not have hesitated to tow the Sovereign Grace Landmark Baptist Party line. It's a Baptist bride. It's made up of faithful members of the Lord's true churches. Now, I'm not so sure that's all there is to it, and let me explain why. First off, the New Testament does teach that the church is the bride of Christ, I don't think it's a coincidence the way God does things that we happen to be in Ephesians 5 and we're about to get to that very thing in Paul's letter. He says in Ephesians 5, 25 through 27, Husbands, love your wives as Christ loved the church and gave himself for her that he might sanctify and cleanse her with a washing of of water by the word that he might present her to himself a glorious church not having spot or wrinkle or any such thing, but that she should be holy and without blemish. In fact, Paul writes to the church at Corinth and says something very similar in 2 Corinthians 11 too. He's told the church, I'm jealous over you with a godly jealousy for I have betrothed you to one husband that I may present you as a chaste virgin to Christ. So it's safe to say that the New Testament presents the relationship 
between the Lord Jesus and his churches as a kind of marriage relationship. And we expect to be united with him in closest communion forever. More on that as we continue in Ephesians. However, is that all that there is to it? I wish I could say it was that easy. There was undoubtedly a time where any doubt I had would have been easy to overcome by a little pulpit pounding. And, you know, there's this temptation. You turn up your volume and it makes you more correct, right? The less certain you are, you just cover it up with more sounding of certainty. But tirades don't equal truth. So I'm also going to point out to you that the Old Testament relationship between Yahweh and the nation of Israel was also pictured as a marriage covenant. And there is more than once that while Israel was unfaithful, God was faithful to promise that he would restore that marriage relationship. For example, Isaiah 54 verses 6 and 7. God speaks to Israel, the Lord has called you like a woman forsaken and grieved in spirit, like a youthful wife when you were refused, says your God. For a mere moment I have forsaken you, but with great mercies I will gather you. In fact, this is what the prophet Hosea was all about, right? God told Hosea to go and marry this unfaithful woman so that he would understand the message of God to the nation of Israel, and that, that message was Hosea 2, 19 and 20. I will betroth you to me forever. Yes, I will betroth you to me in righteousness and justice and loving kindness and mercy. I will betroth you to me in faithfulness and you shall know the Lord. So is it possible that the bride in Revelation is more than just the Lord's churches? Yes. It's obviously not less than that. But even in Revelation, there appears to be more. In fact, look over, if you would, at chapter 21 for a moment. John sees in chapter 21, verse 2, this vision of the city, the new Jerusalem, coming down from heaven, prepared as a bride, adorned for her husband. And verse 9 starts to describe this city. In verse 9, the end of it, uh, he's, he's told, come here, I will show you the bride, the lamb's wife. And what is shown to John, we'll look at in more detail later, but part of it is chapter 21, verse 12, that there are 12 gates with the names of the 12 tribes of Israel. So there is a clear biblical expectation that the church is the bride. There's also plenty of scripture indicating that Israel is the bride. We can't reconcile that just by ignoring it. Now, if I believed in replacement theology, right, which essentially is that the church has replaced Israel, so all the promises to Israel in the Old Testament are now fulfilled in the church, I wouldn't have a problem, but the Bible doesn't teach replacement theology. God's not done with Israel. If I believed in a universal, invisible church that all the saints of all time make up the invisible thing called this universal church, I wouldn't have a problem. But the Bible teaches the church is a local, visible assembly. It's not a universal, invisible thing. 
One proposed solution I have heard to this, which, you know, on the rare occasion that someone has actually admitted the difficulty, is to say that Israel is the bride of God the Father and the church is the bride of God the Son. But there's not two brides here. And can I just add that essentially picturing Israel as our mother-in-law, it seems weird to me. But then I have to be honest and also laugh at myself because it is maybe the height of ignorance to act like saying I don't know proves that I have it all figured out. But I don't know. (laughs) This is a defect in my understanding, but this is the best I've got. It's evident that the church is the bride, but there seems to be more to it than that. All that said, here is what I am certain about. And I'm really glad to be able to say this. Identifying the bride is not what this text is meant to teach us. We have to deal with that, but that's not the essential message of the passage. Here's what this text does teach us. Ready? Who Jesus is and what Jesus has done makes him worthy of worshiping and glorifying him forever. That's not much different than what the book of Revelation as a whole is meant to teach us, right? Who Jesus is and what Jesus does is worthy of worshiping and glorifying him forever. This is not about identifying the bride and elevating and praising her. And that makes so much sense. If we start to take our own ideas and customs about weddings and marriage out of the equation and replace them with biblical ideas. In our customs, we are very much bride-focused. Right? We have bridal shows for women planning weddings. We have bridal showers for women about to get married. We have bridal stores that are just retail places prepared for women getting ready for their wedding. We attend weddings and we wait with anticipation that moment when the bride will walk in and everybody stands up and we play, here comes the bride and we celebrate her. Revelation song is here comes the groom. And any extended time focusing on something other than him is nothing but wasted time. Let me say it this way. I would not care who the bride is in Revelation 19 if not for the fact that I am so utterly consumed with wanting to know more about the groom in Revelation 19. Toward the end of this passage, the Apostle John is just sort of momentarily overwhelmed with this vision. And he falls down at the feet of the angel who is giving this message. Right, Verse 10, I fell down at his feet to worship him. And he said to me, see, you do it not. I am your fellow servant. I'm of your brothers that have the testimony of Jesus. Worship God for the testimony of Jesus is the spirit of prophecy. Our worship is to be focused in the right direction, right? Worship God. And we do that through declaring and glorifying our Savior Jesus Christ, who is the groom of this passage. Is this about identifying the bride? No. That's worth some study. But that's not the main point. In the words of this angelic messenger, 
the testimony of Jesus is the spirit of prophecy. Who Jesus is and what Jesus does is worthy of declaring and glorifying him forever. Again, I want you to see the contrast in this text. In Revelation 17 and 18, that harlot Babylon, that wicked world system is destroyed. We saw last week that the reaction to that destruction is sounded at the end of chapter 18 with singing of funeral dirges, sad songs. Remember there was a sad song by the rulers of the earth. There was a sad song by the merchants of the earth. There's another sad song by the sailors of the earth. They sang in mourning over Babylon's destruction. Chapter 19 opens as John is receiving this message in a vision. He has just recorded those sad songs on earth and they are immediately drowned out with this sudden and triumphant heavenly chorus singing hallelujahs to God. In fact, there are four clear hallelujah songs in our text this morning. Now you'll see the word hallelujah in verses 1 and 3 and 4 and 6. For what it's worth, you won't see that word hallelujah anywhere else in the New Testament besides this. The reason you're familiar with that word is because it is so frequently used in the Old Testament. It is a combination of two Hebrew terms. Halal, which means praise, and Yah, which is a shortened form of Yahweh. Right? Hallel, Yah. Praise Yahweh. Praise God. That shortened term for Yahweh is actually used many times in the Old Testament, specifically in moments of praise for the character and activities of God Almighty. When who He is and what He's done makes you want to sing, the shortened Yah is appropriate. So, for example, Psalm 68 verse 4, sing unto God, sing praises to his name, extol him that rides upon the heavens by his name, Yah, and rejoice before him. Psalm 111 verse 1, praise Yah, and I will give praise to Yahweh with all my heart. Here in Revelation 19, alone in all the New Testament, we find sort of this explosion of praise and hallelujahs sounded from earth. As I said, there are basically four hallelujah choruses in this text. One, praise God as Savior. Verse one. And after these things, I heard a great voice of much people in heaven saying, hallelujah, salvation and glory and honor and power unto the Lord our God. After a few Songs of lament over Babylon's destruction. John hears, he says this great voice, right? Megasphone. Much people in heaven that is drowning out that lament over Babylon with hallelujahs meant to praise God. And why do they praise them? They say because salvation and glory and honor and power unto the Lord our God. The idea of all four is salvation, glory, honor, and power belong to the Lord our God. Biblical history, the the entire arc of human history tells us the story of God's plan of salvation. He was not 
and is not duty-bound to save rebellious sinners, but on the basis of his own desire and for his own glory, through his own work, Yahweh has saved the people on whom he has set his divine love. Salvation belongs to him. Glory belongs to him. The word here is doxa. We've talked about this with doxologies, right? Songs of praise and glory to God. The idea is splendor, brightness, grandeur, brilliance. They all begin with God and they belong to God. Make no mistake, when we glorify God, God was already glorious. We are just remarking and wondering at the glory that is God's alone. Honor is his. The word honor here means to value or to highly esteem. It's the idea of dignity and and majesty and respect. All of this belongs to God. Power is the Lord's alone. That's a unique phrasing here. Simply means power, right? All ability belongs to God alone, although it doesn't specify how he uses that power yet. The next hallelujah song is going to get into that. However God uses his power, he's the only one to whom true power belongs. He does whatever he pleases, and whatever he pleases to do is always right. And you can say this, right? Like, you can read verse 1, and you and I could echo this right now, that salvation and glory and honor and power belong to the Lord. And if we said that, how would we say it? Oh, we might mumble it. We might not even do that, right? Just stare at the songbook in the hands of the person next to us and maybe, just maybe, tap a toe along with a rhythm of praise, right? We've got a major doxology deficit. But here is this heavenly example. And this heavenly example is explosive, right? Even before saying anything about what God has done, simply declaring who God is and what belongs to him is worthy of explosive praise. The essence of worship rests not in your willingness to worship him or your feelings about whether what God has done deserves your praise. The essence of worship rests solely in the fact that God alone is worthy of your worship. Whether you feel like worshiping and praising God, you owe it to him. Even when you and I feel like the effort that it takes to worship isn't worth it, praise God, he is worthy and we should worship him. If this worship is worth emulating, and it is, then it tells us clearly that worship is not about you and me. It's not how, about how it makes us feel, nor does worship fail if you leave it and it, you didn't walk away feeling some certain way. Worship is based on the fact that salvation and glory and honor and power belong to God and our hallelujahs belong to God as well. He is worthy to be praised. Praise God as Savior. Second, praise God as judge. Look at verses two and three. For true and righteous are his judgments. For he has judged the great whore which did corrupt the earth with her fornication and has avenged the blood of his servants at her hand. And again they said, Alleluia, and her smoke rose up forever and ever. 
Now the chorus of hallelujahs does get beyond who God is and sort of enters the realm of what God has done. Verse 2 begins by saying his judgments are true and righteous. That is, every determination God makes as judge, he gets it right. He never misjudges. The, the majestic magistrate does not make any mistakes. Look, some of y'all know that I sort of like true crime stories. It's a popular thing lately. I'd like to think it's not because of any of the salacious details of the crimes, but just out of a sense of real justice, it is satisfying to see justice done. There's a longing for when justice is denied. But one of the realities you end up embracing about human justice is we do not always get it right. Sometimes there's a mystery and we don't know who did it. Sometimes there is a conviction and later evidence proves the conviction, was, the conviction was wrong. All too often, you know, some DNA evidence gets tested later after a guy spent half his life in prison and he is exonerated, proven that he had nothing to do with it. Our justice system, in my opinion, is the greatest justice system in the world and it is still severely flawed. There are no unsolved mysteries with God's justice. There's no erroneous convictions before the judge of all the earth who only and always does right. God as judge, this says, is true and righteous. He will not be fooled. He cannot be bribed. He does not get it wrong. Specifically in this text, the justice of God in destroying Babylon is what is praised. The NIV, one of my least favorite translations, does really well here when it reads, True and just are his judgments, for he has condemned the great prostitute. The justice of God in this case is the condemnation of wickedness, and he is right to do it. This great harlot had the blood of saints on her hands. Her destruction is a worthy cause for praise. Verse 3, hallelujah, her smoke rose up forever and ever. So praise God as Savior, praise God as Judge, praise God as Master. Pick up in verse 4. The 24 elders and the four beasts fell down and worshipped God that sat on the throne saying, Amen, Hallelujah. And a voice came out of the throne saying, Praise our God, all you his servants and you that fear him, both small and great. Now we met this These 24 elders and four living creatures back in Revelation 4, I'm not going to belabor them again here except to say the accumulated population of heaven worships God. Specifically what they say there in verse 4 are two simple words. Two words that should be declared adamantly and repeatedly in Christian worship. You see them at the end of verse 4. Amen and hallelujah. Amen is simply a word of affirmation. To say amen is to say, that's right, that's true, so be it. When we say amen at the end of a prayer, it is the expectation that the Lord hears and cares and answers our prayers. Listen, this word is supposed to be a part of worship. There is no reason to worship God in a way that is... I have sort of struggled for an adjective to describe this. Dull, 
detached, stodgy. It's like somebody in here was told at some point, y'all were making too much noise, keep it down, and and y'all did. Listen, if there was ever some sort of prohibition, consider it lifted. When someone leads us in prayer, they are praying, but you are participating. Go ahead and say amen. When the word of God is read publicly, I don't know why you wouldn't want to affirm and agree with what it says. Say amen. When the Lord Jesus is glorified in song, assuming, of course, that you agree that he's worthy of praise, give voice to that agreement by saying amen. And when the preacher says something that's right, even if the only thing he says that's right that you agree with is, I don't know, go ahead and say, amen, that's right, I don't think he knows. This is part of worship. My point is, verse 4 tells us that amens and hallelujahs, the praising of God, belong together. You're not always going to be the focal point of worship, but you're always expected to be a participant in worship. If you want to hallelujah and praise God, then amen, affirm the ones who are praising God. He's our master and he deserves our service. Regardless of your status, that's his status. Look at verse 5. A voice came out of the throne saying, Praise our God, all you his servants and you that fear him, both small and great. We don't know who this voice is that's speaking from the throne. Instinctively, we would want to say in most scenarios, this is God speaking from the throne. But this voice, in this case, speaks of God in the third person, right? Praise our God, all you of his servants, you that fear him, both small and great. Whatever your job is as a servant of God, you're the servant and he's the master. Your status does not change his status. Verse 5 teaches us you are not too small of a servant of God to praise him and you'll also never be too great of a servant of God to fear him. The idea of fear isn't isn't so much here Quaking in terror before God, although certainly the last couple of chapters tell us that's an appropriate response. It's to fear in the sense of reverential awe and wonder. This is God's command on his big servants and on his little servants. It transcends sort of whatever human distinctions we would make. It demands this from every category. He's Lord and Master with full authority to make this command. Fear him, serve him, praise him. He's worthy of your hallelujahs. Amen. Praise God as Savior. Praise God as Judge. Praise him as Master. Verse 6, praise God as King. I heard as it were the voice of a great multitude as the voice of many waters as the voice of mighty thunderings saying, Hallelujah for the Lord God omnipotent reigns. Don't miss here John's complete inability to describe this sound of praise. Right? 
He's already said up in verse one, it's a great voice. It's a megasphone, right? Huge, huge sound. It's explosive. And now he gets down to verse six and he says, look, it's like, it's like the sound of a huge crowd. It's like the roar of a waterfall or, or waves crashing against a rock. It's like the deafening sounds of mammoth resonating peals of thunder. He cannot describe the magnitude of the sound, but the magnitude is reflected in the simplicity of what's said. Hallelujah, the Lord God omnipotent reigns. Omnipotent is a compound word from omni meaning all and potent meaning powerful. He is all powerful. That is simply to say he is almighty is what that means. Two things in this text tell us that this is about the praise of King Jesus. First off, it's that term almighty because it gets used uh, nine times in Revelation, most notably to describe the Lord Jesus himself. Back in Revelation chapter 1, verse 8, he's the Alpha and Omega, the beginning and the end, who was and is and is to come, the Almighty. In chapter 11, verse 17, the Lord God Almighty, who was, who are, who is and was and is to come, assumes great power and reigns. In chapter 15, verse 3, there's that song of the Lamb that is, great and marvelous are your works, Lord God Almighty. Just and true are your ways, you King of saints. The Lord Jesus is the Almighty God. The second thing in this verse that tells us this is about King Jesus is simply the word reigns. That's what a king does, right? The the timing of this, this is at the end of the tribulation. It's the, the beginning of the rule of Messiah King Jesus over the earth. We're eventually going to see down in verses 15 and 16 that the Lord Jesus returns. He is the almighty God and he carries with him the name King of kings and Lord of lords. In everything we've seen here, the call of these hallelujah choruses is to praise God. Jesus is that God to be praised. He is Savior and Judge and Master and King. He alone is worthy of all our hallelujahs. Now there is a a fifth call to praise in our text, though it doesn't specifically use the word alleluia. It's still a call to praise him because the song in verse six continues, right? The voice of that multitude isn't done when it proclaims Jesus as king. The song anticipates Jesus as groom. So start in verse seven. Let us be glad and rejoice and give honor to him. For the marriage of the Lamb is come, and his wife has made herself ready. And to her was granted that she should be arrayed in fine linen, clean and white. For the fine linen is the righteousness of saints. And he said to me, write, blessed are they which are called unto the marriage supper of the Lamb. And he said unto me, these are the true sayings of God. Okay, so we're back to the bride again, right? Yeah, but that's not the focus. 
Verse 7, let us be glad and rejoice and give honor to him. That word honor there, it's, it's actually the same word for glory up earlier. It's doxa. Give glory to him. In other words, this is not here comes the bride. It's here comes the groom. He's the focus. It's not to ignore what the text says about the bride. It says his wife has made herself ready. But I want you to see in this text, the readiness of the bride, it is part of the text. While, while I think of the, the, the bride may consist of more than just the church, it's certainly not less than that. And the New Testament passages which equate the church as the bride of Christ will tell us there's an important lesson here. All along in those lessons in the New Testament, it is that there is readiness called for. A, a little bit of a, uh, history and culture lesson will help us here because weddings in the first century were not like weddings today. It didn't happen the way they do now. There were actually several steps involved in first century marriages. First, there was a betrothal. This was often determined by parents long before the boy and girl were old enough to marry. Marriages were arranged. And it was more than just being engaged. That arrangement, that betrothal was legally binding. The only way to get out of a betrothal was a full-fledged divorce. When that betrothal was agreed upon, the groom and his family, usually the father, would pay a bride price, or we, we would call it a dowry, to make it a legal and binding contract. And the plan wasn't then for the bride and groom to, you know, buy a house and live the American dream. The idea is the groom was expected to take the bride and bring her into his father's family to live as part of that family. All of that happens before the actual wedding. The, the actual wedding, there would be this great feast that was planned. The, the wedding ceremony might be attended by some family and a handful of friends, but the feast would be for most of the community. And it, when it was time for all of that to culminate, the groom would come calling with a processional. Picture it as like a, a little parade of him and his family and friends and collect the bride and bring her back to the father's house for this wedding feast and ceremony. Now when it comes to this wedding here in Revelation, it's following that pattern, right? This is an arranged marriage. God the Father in his elective will determined the bride in eternity past. There's been a price that has been paid. The, the blood of Jesus Christ is what secures this relationship. The Lord Jesus even told his disciples, I'm going to prepare a place for you. Where? In my father's house. And the return of the Lord Jesus is then assured. His arrival is promised. It's anticipated. And when that arrival happens here, when here he comes, there's going to be this feast. There's going to be the marriage supper of the lamb and the celebration and unity with him goes on for eternity. You can see, I hope, 
that pattern for marriage and weddings is what's being described here. Not what we usually think about. This is a picture of what the Lord has planned for us. And so when verse 7 says, his wife has made herself ready, it does speak about this, this anticipation of his arrival. Right? And the culmination of verse 9, the marriage supper of the Lamb. By the way, <laughs> verse 9, the fact that there is a marriage supper of the Lamb and it says in verse 9 there are promised blessings to those guests who attend it, that kind of tells us not all saved people in heaven are part of the bride, right? Somebody's got to be there for the party. But as far as the bride goes, her focus is the glory for the divine groom. Even the phrase, she has made herself ready, is qualified here by how it is that she's done that. Her, her readiness is her responsibility. Verse 8 says the readiness has to do with her, her fine white linen clothes, which represent the righteousness of the saints. But even that readiness, even that righteousness, is for the glory of Jesus alone. Look at the beginning of verse 8. To her was granted, right? That is, it was, to her it was given, to wear those fine white linen clothes. Our righteousness is in Christ alone imputed to us, granted to us. Now with all of that, you are responsible to double check me. You know, I do not want to misrepresent the text and I don't want to miss the point of the Holy Spirit who inspired it. And if I've got the bride wrong here, which I'm not sure how I could because what I've consistently said is I don't know. The overarching meaning of this text is not to magnify the bride, it is to identify and glorify the groom. Right, verse 10, I fell down at his feet to worship him. That is John fell down at the feet of the angelic messenger to worship him. And the messenger said, don't do that. I'm just your fellow servant. I'm like your brothers that have the testimony of Jesus. You worship God for the testimony of Jesus is the spirit of prophecy, right? We don't worship angels. Jesus is better than the angels, we're not to worship anyone but God. And to do that, we, we do it by testifying, by proclaiming what we know about the Lord Jesus, God the Son. The angel says the spirit of prophecy is to testify, it is to give witness to the Lord Jesus. So in other words, the sum total of prophecy from the Old Testament, the proclamations in the New Testament, the preaching that happens in the Lord's churches, all of it is to testify about, to give glory to Jesus Christ the Lord. He's our Savior. He's our Judge. He's our Master. He's our King. He is the divine groom who's coming to collect his bride, and he alone deserves glory. Who Jesus is and what Jesus has done is worthy of worshiping and glorifying him forever.